There are a lot of people whose company I enjoy, whose wisdom feeds me and whose energy sustains me. But there's one person who surely beats the rest, at least most of the time. And that's my dad. My dad is arguably the person I've spent most of my time with, from car rides to malls and music stores when I was younger, and the daily commute to school and back for as long as I can remember. Ballet lessons, swimming lessons, piano lessons, and more recently, driving lessons. All the lessons were shared in one way or another with him. My dad knows me best. He knows when I'm excited about something, because I'll go on and on about it, until he knows even the most menial details. He knows when I'm upset, because I'll be eerily quiet, and he'll remind me not to stress too much, or get too worked up, or in his own words, Not everyone who has family has relationships. Many people have parents who are physically present, but emotionally gone. These parents may have a tangible, physical presence, but they don't show up fully. That is, with their hearts and their actions. Some people on the other end of the spectrum have parents who are emotionally present, but physically gone. Memories and feelings are all that remain with no pulse, no smile, no flesh, blood, or skin to attach them to. Yet I've been blessed to have parents that are a lot more present than I immediately realize. Oftentimes I feel like an anomaly, the odd one out among the multitudes whose fathers are absent from their lives in one way or another. After many days of delaying, from clashing at-home schedules, busy mornings, tired nights, I finally carved out the time to have this conversation with my dad, to dig a bit deeper into the relationship I have with him and what fatherhood means to him and to me. After a cup of Persian tea, Ceylon infused with rose water and cardamom, a brew we learnt and came to love when we visited the Middle East a few years ago, a short talk about the weather and some politics, we hopped into my dad's Polo Vivo, because the acoustics are better in the car, and we began to dissect. I hope that this episode of Five Loaves and Two Fish will be as much of a blessing to you as it was to me. This is episode two, Daddy's Girl. Hey. Papa, so welcome to the podcast. This is officially the second episode of Five Loaves and Two Fish. And today I wanted to dig deeper into the relationship that I have with you. We were speaking about it the other day, Go. Amongst my friends, a lot of them either A, didn't grow up with their dads, or their dads aren't really present in their lives. And to me, that wasn't something that I could relate to. Now we've like you often say, we've driven to many places together 
every morning we'd drive to school together. You'd pick me up from school. So most of my time was spent with you. And with someone come with like, you're the person that knows me best. So today I wanted to dig deeper into that. And I've been reading Barack Obama's memoir, A Promised Land, for the past three weeks now. And there's a specific page that I'd like to read to you about what Barack Obama described as the birth of his daughter, Malia, and what fatherhood felt like to him. So he says, the first two years of the legislature was fine. Michelle was busy with her own work, and although she kept her promise not to come down to the state capitol, except for my swearing in, we'd still have leisurely conversations on the phone on nights when I was away. Then one day, in the fall of 1997, she called me at the office, her voice trembling. It's happening. What's happening? You're going to be a daddy. I was going to be a daddy. How full of joy the months that followed were. I lived up to every cliche of the expectant father, attending LeMay's classes, trying to figure out how to assemble a crib, reading the book What to Expect When You're Expecting, with pen in hand to underline key passages. Around 6 a.m. on the 4th of July, Michelle poked me and said it was time to go to the hospital. I fumbled around and gathered the bag I'd set by the door, and just seven hours later was introduced to Malia Ann Obama. Eight pounds and 15 ounces of perfection. Among her talents, our new daughter had good timing. With no session, no classes, no big pending cases to work on, I could take the rest of the summer off. A night owl by nature, I manned the late shift so Michelle could sleep, resting Malia in my thighs to read to her as she looked up with big questioning eyes, or dozing as she lay on my chest, a burp and good poop behind us, so warm and serene. I thought about the generations of men who had missed such moments, and I thought about my own father, whose absence had done more to shape me than the brief moments I'd spent with him. And I realized there was no place on earth I'd rather be. So the last passage that I just read is what stuck out to me about how generations of men had missed out on such moments that Obama speaks about. So I wanted to know, what did it feel like to you when I was born? What was the moment of realization that you're now a father, and what did that feel like to you? Oh, thank you very much. <clears throat> um, I guess I still remember the day vividly. Um, um, it was a cold winter day. Uh, we were approaching winter at that time when I got the news that Ayanda Siwela was born on that day. I do not have words. Words are actually inadequate for me to express how I felt on that day. Um, the excitement, the happiness, the joy that I had on that particular day can never be described. I cannot paint it. I cannot explain it. I couldn't sleep on that day. But all that I remember is that I played a song by Andrea Bocelli, uh, 
almost the whole night. Um, I forgot the name of the song, but it's a famous Italian song, which I played it for a very long time out of excitement. Uh, I was then allowed to go to the hospital. I was extremely excited, extremely, extremely. The, excited, the excitement hasn't left me thus far. Thank you. <laughs> no problem. So in your life, you've told me about many men that have shaped you so far, be it uncles, be it politicians, be it my grandfather himself. But which men do you think have shaped you in your ideals of what fatherhood should look like and what being a real man should look like? And what is your definition of being a real man? Uh, it would be difficult to pinpoint the exact man, but I think for the sake of progress, I would select one or two uh, my own father is a is a is a is a you know an an epitome you know he's is an enigma of uh, what fatherhood fatherhood is supposed to be <clears throat> when we grew up he exemplified for me what a father is supposed to be. Week after week, he would take us to the cinema. By then, we would go to the great city of Johannesburg uh, to watch a movie in the famous, um, uh, I think that place was called Good Hope, I, I, I guess. We would go to the park just to to be with him, you know. Um, we would drive along with him to a big place or a small place just to be with him, um, you know. All those things, you know. He he would do whatever that which a father is supposed to do. Think about anything a father is supposed to be there when you go to school, when you need um, um, assistance. A father needs you to, sometimes, not necessarily that he, you want money, but he, you just want him to, 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 you, you just want him to listen to you. <clears throat> so my old man was, <clears throat> excuse me, was, was there. Uh, not only for me, my younger sister, Angela. <coughs> I think we have a couple of pictures when uh, uh, the great city of Johannesburg was still Johannesburg. We were with the old man in in the city of Johannesburg. So for me, that formed part of fatherhood in me that, oh, this is how it's done. You know, he would go to work at times on a Saturday, would take me along, you know, all those sorts of things, you know, would go along together. When he would visit his own relatives, his own brothers and sisters, family, 
he would go along with me. But there are other people that I think are equally great. Um, a person like Mr. Paul Zamini, I met him when I got an opportunity to work at a school in Soweto called Riyashuma. For me, he is an outstanding uh, exemplar of what fatherhood is supposed to mean. Um, he represented fatherhood amongst many children at the time, uh, the children who never had, you know, parents of their own looked at him as, you know, a, a good parent. So I learned a lot from him at that time. And he would always invite me to be with him to, to, to you know, to have a conversation. You know, at times he would go from, you know, so where to, to run back to pick up his kids. And that's what he would, he would do daily. You know, imagine from Soweto, ran back, pick up his kid from school. Mm. It was a daily routine. And to this very day, Mr. Paul Zamini is very close to his children. Thank you. Thank you. <coughs> I think something that I'm thinking about right now is that your profession also lends a lot to your character, the character that I know. So just for context, my father is a teacher and you've been a teacher for a long time. And I was actually surprised to learn maybe about last year or so that this isn't the profession that you opted for initially. You, Your character also lends more to the law and uh, what's the word? Political aspect of things. And these are things that you like a lot. But I think being a teacher suits you. And from what you've described many of your experiences at school to be like is it shows that you, as much as you describe Mr. Paul Zamini as a father to some of the children that you are teaching, I think you've also played the role of a father in many ways to children at your school. Well, uh, <coughs> that one I do not know <laughs> uh, whether I have played a role of being a father uh, to many children, uh, but I'll leave it to to them to decide. Um, but I guess and I wish that uh, in the many years that I've contributed into uh, society, uh, to my own community, um, that my contribution could be the positive one, the one that can help someone to to become better, to become enlightened, you know, so that they can also teach others. More than that, I, I think I, I cannot I cannot really say that I have been much more greater. It's the society that will decide for me. It's not for me. I think there's a quote that I'm thinking about that says, well, I think it's even in the Bible that says you can't bear witness to yourself, that others must bear witness for you. And I guess... You can't blow your own horn. Yes, you can't blow your own horn. Yes. So I think it, it lends to your humility as well. Um, what you just said is deeply profound. Uh, as for humility as well, I do not know. <laughs> no, but I would I would count you 
I would count you as 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 a humble man. Uh, that one, I also leave it to you <laughs> to decide. And and, uh, and and your brother and the family to decide. It's not for me to decide. Speaking of contributions <laughs> to society, there's something recently that you've gained an interest in that I've been watching very closely. You've always been the person to document things. You've always been the one who likes taking pictures of us from when we were younger, whenever we go on trips. You may not take many pictures, but the few pictures that you do take, you hold on to very dearly, first of all. And secondly, they're very good pictures. And your style of documenting things has changed, or at least it's widened more, or maybe I've just become more aware of it. Recently, you've taken to documenting the lives of the people that are around you and the people that are closest to your heart. So where does this passion for documenting specifically or especially your family's history and the lives of your friends and the people around you, where does it come from? Oh, that's that's a very interesting question. <clears throat> Maybe I, I assume my first time when I started to document the history and the life of someone was in my early years, in the 80s. Um, when I went to school in, my, in our village, uh, Ndengeza village, we are a royal family. And uh, I used to engage elderly people, try to talk to them, find out of who we are, where do we come from, I wanted, I wanted them to tell me more about our history, our heritage. And uh, there was an old man called David Ndengeza. <clears throat> I engaged this old man about our family history. He then said to me, no, I cannot just tell you um, our history, but make a plan that you document this. Either you, you record it, via, by then we were using uh, audio tapes and uh, video tapes, which were called VHS, or you write it down. So I then made it my, you know, commitment to, to, to see him often. I would go to his place. He would tell the story time after time. And every day he tells the same story once, twice, thrice. And I started to write all of this, all of that rather down. <clears throat> I wrote it down. Then later I decided to record that via the audio. And unfortunately, unfortunately, this for me is the richest form of history that I ever documented, but all of this is lost. However, it then led me to realize that we can do more in terms of saving what we have today and celebrating what we have today for our children and for the future. 
I mean, you and I had a conversation that what makes the Americans different from us is that they celebrate ordinary people mm. in their everyday lives. But why can't we celebrate our own family? Why can't we celebrate our own friends? Why can't we celebrate our own teachers, mm. our own lawyers, you know, our own religious leaders, our own political leaders in a small space? You don't have to be on television, you know. So that's what came into my mind that if we can celebrate our own ordinary people and then show them how significant they are. And later we have that file saved in the next 10 years, 12 years, 15 years, someone can go back and say, here lived a great man. Here lived a great street sweeper. Mm. You know, here lived someone who did good. Here lived someone who contributed to society. Here lived someone who had a vision. Here lived someone who wanted to make someone great. That's what came into my mind. And uh, uh, other than that, I think it is also good to make people feel good about their contribution mm. to society. You know, when you when you tell someone that uh, look, you you are a legend, mm. which obviously they are they also feel good. So why should we wait for them to die and then make long speeches while we can tell a story when they're still alive? Let's tell a tale. Let's tell a story while they're still alive. That's, that's incredible. <coughs> and do you think, do you think this is just a realization that you came to on your own or are there people around you that inspired you to want to document your your history and the histories of the people around you? I wouldn't say I saw anyone or anyone influenced me. It just came around, you know, when I had these people talking about uh, our family history and most of them were saying, these people, referring to our family, are great people. They are... Um, majestic they are very royal they are respectable they are highly honored by people and uh, they've got a glorious history so all of that triggered me you know it, it it made me to to be interested in knowing more what is this greatness what is this majesty what is this glorious history where do these people come from what makes them to be respected you know and and then I wanted to investigate this, to find out. And, and the only form of investigating this was to document all of this uh, glorious history. Okay. In the, in the 46 years, it's going on 46 in a few days' time. In the 46 years that you have lived, what would you say is the greatest lesson that you've learned so far? Yeah, that's a difficult question. But uh, <coughs> um, there are many lessons that I have learned. I still yet I'm still yet to learn, but. 
I think it is important for us as human beings to learn to be simple, ordinary, and humble. I think the word humble lately has become um, too ordinary the way it's used. You know, humility is what God requires. Humility is what makes a man honorable. Humility is what grants men respect. Humility can be learned from the greatest men who ever lived under the sun. The carpenter himself, the man from Nazareth, Jesus Christ himself was humble. So I think that's what I have learned, which I wish you and your brother and many others can learn that being humble will elevate you than being arrogant. When you're arrogant, the world will judge you terribly. But when you're humble, the world will remember you in great memories. And I think people have, <clears throat> people have negative connotations with humility because for a long time, my understanding and the understanding of other people about humility is making yourself much smaller or not shining in the way that you are naturally supposed to, suppressing some of the things that you have. But I think humility or true humility is not taking up too much space, like you said, being arrogant, not taking up too little space, not giving yourself the room to shine as you're supposed to, to give the radiance of God that's planted within you, not to dim that light within you, but rather to take up just the right amount of space that you've been given in the world. Don't overestimate yourself, but don't underestimate yourself either. Think of yourself just as you are, and that's what true humility is. Of course. I cannot agree with you more. You know, um, um, we, we have great examples of people who are very humbled and those who have been humble in the public space and in our own families. You know, when you look at um, the old man who passed away, our former president, uh, President Nelson Mandela, a humble man, a humble man. He was too big for him to be that ordinary. You know, there are many other people who are ordinary, who are, who are big, but yet, you know, they, 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 they are still, they don't let that limelight to overwhelm them, to disrespect others, to undermine, to overlook others. Uh, you still remain the ordinary person that you are. You don't become arrogant. 
you can st still associate with any person. You don't lose what I call your common touch. You still are the same old ordinary person, whether you're a doctor, whether you're a judge, whether you are anything, you remain the same old person. Thank you. Thank you. There's actually something I'd like to get before we finish off. Just one second, I forgot it. So 2020 was my last year of high school. It was my matric year. And as we all know, 2020 didn't go as planned. I didn't think that it would pan out the way that it did. But there were many things that I experienced in the year, be it the realization that these are some of the last car rides we're going to have together every morning and every afternoon. Be it the realization that I'm going to university next year. But there's a letter that you wrote to me the day of my matric dance, along with the speech that you gave on my matric dance. And first, I'd like to start off by reading the letter. This letter, for some time, I'd actually misplaced it. And it, it worried my heart so much that I didn't have this letter anymore. Because... I think of the many things that you've ever given me, of the many words that you've ever spoken to me, I cherish this probably above anything else that I own at the moment. And it reads, To Ayanda, Today marks almost the end of your remarkable elementary epic educational journey. You have proven your willingness to work tirelessly, hard burning the midnight toil. Given what you've achieved in your entire school days, Certainly, the opportunities are endless for you. It is, however, important to remind you on a day like this that gratitude is the least of virtues and at the same time, ingratitude is the worst of vices. In simpler terms, your journey to being as triumphant as you are today came along with the help of many people that you should cherish in your life, people such as your teachers and many more. We encourage you to engrave their names into your heart for the rest of your life. It is equally important that you should be proud of yourself. It is essential to express gratitude to your own self. It is not easy to have young people succeed academically lately because of the many obstacles that exist in our times. We pray for you as your parents, not to lose your common touch as you journey on with your life. We pray for you to keep your virtue. We pray for you to embrace your gains and openly accept life's tragic losses. Do not be afraid to start at the beginning. Despite it all, you should never breathe a word about your loss. Enjoy your day. We're proud of you. There are many children who look up to you as a model. Given where we come from as your parents, 
it would be fitting to leave you with the words of the Nigerian poet Ben Okri when he says, We are the miracles that God made, to taste the bitter fruit of time. We are precious, and one day our suffering will turn into the wonders of the earth. We wish you all we wish you well in all your endeavors. With God along your side, you won't fail from mom and dad. There are two quotes specifically from this letter that I have carried in my heart and engraved in my heart with indelible ink since I read this letter. And the first one is about gratitude being the least of virtues and ingratitude the worst of vices. At the end of the year last year, we had a conversation as we're going to school where I asked you if 2020 had been a bad year. Because at the time, I was... I was reflecting on what had happened externally throughout the world and even in our close family and extended family there were people that had lost their lives due to covid and some people's situations were bad as you made me realize that i may not understand the extent to which other people's lives had been affected by this but still in my heart i believe that it wasn't a bad year at least for me because i'd learned to become more grateful. I learned to become grateful of the small things, to be grateful for the family that we share, the time that we spend together, even in the smallest ways. And the second quote that stuck with me is to never breathe a word about your loss. There are many times where I've spoken to you about whether it's an exam that didn't go according to plan or just something that didn't go as I'd intended it to go. And never have you allowed me to wallow in my losses. You've never allowed me to to give up, in a sense. And I think this carries with me, or rather I carry this with me a lot, to never breathe a word about about my losses, to not let the losses go to, to my heart, neither to let the winds go to my head. Of course, it's true. Um... Many a times, people don't like to. Um, should I should I put it the other way around? They don't like to. They don't they don't like to talk about their failures. And their losses. Instead, they would tell you about their gains. Um, if you can learn in life. To embrace. You know, the two imposters, you know, victory and failure together, then you'll succeed. If you can learn to walk side by side with the kings and you don't lose your common touch, then you'll succeed. If you can learn the virtue of being successful and also to embrace the failure that comes with it, then you will succeed. Then you are ready to, then you are ready to live. Like my pastor, Pastor Mess says, if you are ready, if you are ready to die, you are ready to live. So be always prepared for a loss. If you are ready for a loss, you are ready for success. 
be prepared to lose. And when you are prepared to lose, you are ready to succeed. In the event that you lose, you are prepared. And don't be afraid to start again. That I will say it once, I will say it twice, I will say it thrice. There are many people in this life who tragically lost, but they were never, never ready to give up. And even with yourself and with many others, don't underestimate, um, um, you know, small gains. If someone makes 50%, it's their success. Celebrate it. Don't say, why didn't you make it up to 60 or 70? Let's celebrate it. We can only encourage that person to, to do more. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for allowing me to start my own journey of documenting the people that are around me. Thank you for allowing me into your mind, allowing me into your own personal history. Um, I think this was a very fruitful conversation. And thank you for being the best father that I've ever known. I think as much as you said that your father epitomizes what fatherhood looks like for you, I often say to my friends that I would never, I would never date anyone that treats me any less than what my father treats me. I'd never allow for anyone to, you've set the bar very high, even in the smallest ways, whether it's just driving with you in your car or whether we actually go out to the mall or whether we go shopping, the smallest things have ingrained within me that fatherhood is about being present and not just about being physically present, but about being emotionally present to not invalidate the feelings of your children. Even when sometimes your children's feelings are very controversial or they are very out of, we, we've spoken many times about the times. <laughs> about, yes, about noise. <laughs> or, or the times <laughs> when I would, I would make very controversial statements at school or cause, or cause an uproar at school. Commotion. Commotion. That's the word. So you've never, you've never made me feel like there's something inherently wrong with me. Go. Why, why do you keep, why do you feel so strongly about this? Why do you, why, why can't you just keep quiet? Why do you continue to, to commit fight? and to make what we call mulligate? <laughs> And I've never gotten the sense that I should change, bend or fold to be anyone else other than the person that I am. So I thank you for sharing these 17 going on 18 years with me. And I pray that God extends this time even further. You always make jokes about how one day we'll remember you when you're no longer here. You'll be in what you call Jesus location. <laughs> so, with, my, with my friends. <laughs> with your friends. <laughs> so... Even though I know that on that day in heaven, there'll be rejoicing. There'll be, there'll be joy over your arrival. There'll be lost to me. But I know that the time that I've spent with you so far has been absolutely invaluable. And I couldn't ask for more. I certainly can't ask for less because what you have given me is more than enough. The knowledge that you've passed through books, through quotes, through listening to music. I think 
from you is where my love and passion for music comes from. Although we may not agree on our music taste sometimes. Hip-hop. <laughs> <laughs> you know, whereas I lean more to the hip-hop, I'm on the other side of the spectrum. You lean more to the jazz, classical music. I started listening to classical music because of you. I started listening to jazz because of you. And at times I think you've been shocked by my new preference in music and in, in jazz. So I thank you. I thank you for the lessons that you've learned. I thank you for the small things that you don't realize made a huge difference in my life, knowing that every single day I could rely on you to take me to school and to take me back. I I laughed about it the other day when I thought, go, oh, there were days when I would have had the worst day at school and I'd get into the car and you'd say something that you just say every single day, for instance, and that would change my entire mood for the rest of the day. I'd know as soon as I get in the car with Papa, I'll be fine. And even there was a time when we were going to school in the morning and I was crying and you asked me what had happened and I explained to you why I was crying. And it's like, you're like, no, don't cry about that. It's fine. It's going to be okay. And I felt like it was going to be okay. And you are the constant source of equilibrium. You you are the person that grounds me. And I think there's no one who knows me better than you. And I'm grateful for that. And I'm grateful that you're my father. And I love you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Wow. Wonderful. Number one. The 3rd of February marks my dad's birthday. And my dad isn't really big on gifts. But... This year, I decided to do something different. This podcast episode is dedicated especially to him. On this, your 47th birthday, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Happy birthday, Dad.